Amen. The Lord is our salvation. The name of Jesus means the Lord is our salvation. Jude's singing in a, a Christmas concert at, at Percy Priest down the road here, you know, public metro school. And one of the songs they're singing, they're singing songs from all around the world. And one of them they're singing is a Hebrew song that's a, an old Jewish folk carol. And it's Mayim Mayim. And, and he was singing it. And it says something about Yeshua in it. And I said, what? Say that again? And it, it, that's the name of Jesus. Yeshua means the Lord is salvation. And that's the good news that we come to proclaim here. And we have a lot of good news at Woodmont, uh, not just the, the best news of all, that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again, but uh, we had a wonderful fall fest. The weather changed last uh, Sunday afternoon. I was just so pleased. I think Jeff Castleberry said there were like 375 people that came through. So kudos to Rachel and your team, the, the, the work you did, all the volunteers. We couldn't have pulled it off without you. I met so many new people and, and visitors in our community, and then a uh, Last night, by a stroke of God's grace, again, uh, Trey planned a lock-in, or two nights ago on Friday night, for the, the youth on the weekend of the time change. I said, did you do that on purpose? He said, no, it just, just worked out that way. I said, well, you need to do that every year. That's fantastic. And then this morning, you may have noticed that they had a Nerf war all around the church. So, Trey, I keep finding these. Here's a, there you go. Perfect. All right. I found about 12 of those yesterday around the church. No big deal. I know y'all cleaned up, but... Uh, who, who won the Nerf War? Is it just a, a Steve Wilkinson did? Oh, Steve did. <laughs> huh? The red and green team won. There was actually a winner. That's fantastic. So if you guys fall asleep today, you have no excuse. You had an extra hour of sleep, so y'all stay awake, all right? As long as I can remember, church has been a big part of my life. I'm, like many of you, have been in church since before I was born, and I know it's increasingly rare in our culture to have grown up in church. I keep meeting young adults who are new to Nashville who have never been in church, never understood anything about church. But I know there's a lot of you here who can't remember not being in church. I was in Calvin's class last week, and I was talking about Jim Askew. And I said, Jim, how long have you been in this church? He said, since 1951. I said, you're almost a charter member, Jim. How did you pull that off? He said, I was 17 when we joined the church here and was, I was baptized. And, and then he, he said, Calvin let me know that he was a young driver. He had his driver's license and he made it his ministry to go pick up all the nursing students from Belmont University as his ministry and met one beautiful young student named Carolyn and he uh, taught her how to drive in the parking lot out here. And he said, I didn't teach any of the rest of them how to drive. <laughs> And Jim's in the hospital this morning, so I hope he's watching this and know that we're praying for him this morning. But I've always been in church. So, so what is church, though? What does it mean that I've always been in church? Does that mean that I've always been in a church building my whole life? What is church? I often hear visitors to Nashville comment on how there's a church on every corner here. I met a, a visitor here today from Wisconsin. I bet she's thinking, Nashville's full of churches, man. There's one on every corner. Why is that? You know, I tell people where our church is located here on Church Row in Green Hills, and they know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, where all those churches are in Green Hills. If you drive down Franklin Road from, like, Old Hickory to uh, Woodmont, you pass, what, 25 churches probably uh, on that street? Is it simply a, a building? Is that what a church is with a sign that's out front that lets you know what kind of church that church is. Is that what we're talking about when we say church? 
Today we're going to look at a powerful and important part of the Apostles' Creed as a part of our series going through this core doctrines of our faith. And I know there's a lot of visitors here today. We don't always recite the creed or say the corporate confession of sin or the Lord's Prayer, but this is part of a series of recovering some of these ancient words that have ever been true, that are part of the church's rich history and tradition that we can partake in with the saints around the world. So we're going to look at this line in the creed that we must understand rightly if we're going to understand what church is all about. And this matters because we here at at Woodmont, in this this family of faith, in this location, we want to function as a healthy church, right? We want to exist as the kind of church that God wants us to be, faithfully playing our part in God's redemptive purposes for Nashville and beyond. So we're going to be looking at the next two lines of the creed. We started with last week with this third paragraph in the creed that begins with, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And today we're going to look at, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. So our text for today comes from these really two passages of scripture that comprise what are known as the great commandments and the great commission. The great commandments and the great commission. So stand with me in honor of God's word if you're able to this morning as I read these words from our Lord Jesus Christ himself in Mark chapter 12 and then Matthew 28. Starting in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, hear the words of the Lord. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And then in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Okay, before we dive into these texts, I just kind of glossed over that Catholic word a minute ago, right? So I want to address some semantic issues that might have arisen in your mind because of this word in the creed, Catholic. As we've been going through this series, I've heard some confusion, let's say, about this word, and I look forward to getting to clarify what we actually mean when we say, I believe in the holy Catholic church. First, if you look up Catholic in the dictionary, which I did, you'll see that the word is an adjective that means including a wide variety of things, all embracing. And I'm quoting from the dictionary here. It says, as in, her tastes are pretty Catholic. 
I admit, I've never personally used the word Catholic in that way, and you probably haven't either, but that's what the dictionary says. The, uh, in Merriam-Webster dictionary, the first definition is of relating to or forming the church universal. The second definition in the Merriam-Webster dictionary is of relating to or forming the ancient undivided Christian church or a church claiming historical continuity from it. The third definition in the Merriam-Webster dictionary is the capital C Catholic, meaning Roman Catholic. And as I was visiting with Jim Askew in the hospital this week, he said, you know, you're a brave man. I said, why? Why is that? And he said, you're, you're asking us to say we believe in the Catholic church. And I was like, Jim, man, it's, it's lowercase c. He said, no, it's not. I said, no, it's, it's lowercase c. He said, go look at it. And Andy and I were talking about this. We were laughing. It's in all caps here, the font that he uses in all caps. But it's a lowercase c. You can't tell in here on the screens it's lowercase. But Jim Askew, as per usual, was correct. So, but I promise you, Andy said, in the font that I use, it's a lowercase c. I said, I know, I know. We appreciate it. <laughs> Never crossed my mind. The Apostles' Creed, let's remember, was originally written in Koine Greek, which is fascinating to me, by the way. Here's a free excursion. Jesus taught in what language? He spoke what language? Aramaic. It was a Semitic language like Hebrew. But what did the gospel writers write their gospels in? They translated Jesus's words into Greek, which means from the very beginning, Christianity was a translated religion. It was meant to be for all cultures, in all places around the world. It was a global religion, which is why we read the Bible in English. You know, in Islam, you can't do that. You don't translate the Quran. It's Arabic, Arabic, Arabic only. It's not holy. It's not sacred if it's not Arabic. Christianity was always meant to be translated, which is why I love the work of like Wycliffe Bible translators trying to get the Bible into everyone's language because Christianity was meant to permeate culture and language and traditions around the world. So the, the Greek phrase for holy Catholic church in Greek is hagion ecclesiae catholicae, catholicae in Greek, Catholic. And that word catholicae simply means universal. It means that there's only one church around the world because there's only one Lord. Either you're under the lordship of Christ and you're part of the church, or you're not under the lordship of Christ and not part of the church. Sure, there's, there's thousands of Christian communities, even, uh, you know, here in Nashville, there's hundreds, you know, but around the world, there's hundreds of thousands of Christian communities, and they're spread out across all the different countries and even at different times and in different cultural expressions, but they're all mysteriously united in one spirit, the Holy Spirit. That's why this line appears in the creed right after I believe in the Holy Spirit. This, this line appears here because it's the Spirit who creates the church and who empowers the church. It was God's idea. The church was God's idea. Jesus redeemed the church, but it's the Spirit who indwells and empowers the church today. And the church is the one body of Christ. 
with the one Lord Jesus Christ as its head. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 through 23. You know, the letter to the Ephesians is all about God's design for the church. It's his blueprints for what the church universal should be and do. And Paul writes in this letter at the beginning, and he, God the Father, put all things under his, Jesus' feet. God the Father put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So since we have one head, then the church must be one body, unified. And that oneness shows us the importance of unity among those who profess faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The covenant people of God have always been called to oneness, to unity, even in the Old Testament. In the the history book of 2 Chronicles, in chapter 30, verse 12, we see how the nation of Judah, the whole kingdom, was unified by the hand of God on it. It's a beautiful verse. It says, the hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. That's only something the hand of God can do to unify God's people. And now for us, the new covenant people of God, it also matters that we're one. It's God's desire that we be unified. It's actually part of Jesus' prayer for us. Did you know that Jesus prayed for us? Not just his disciples, he prayed for us. Look at John chapter 17 in the upper room when they're celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. He asked God to unify the future church. Starting in verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, for these 11 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they, us, also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. What a promise that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Wow, what a claim. I've been reading a bunch of books on the creed as part of this series, and one of them's by Michael Bird. It's called What Christians Ought to Believe, and He says there is one church that exists in all places, and yet it adheres to one faith. In the end, the Catholicity of the church is simply the universal expression of its oneness. All believers, wherever they are, are one in Christ and therefore one with each other. The concept of independent churches then is an oxymoron. Yikes, that kind of goes against some of our Baptistic tendencies, doesn't it? I'm all about autonomy of the local church. I'm all about soul competency and those classic Baptist ideals. But if this is true that we are one church, then we are definitely not independent or autonomous, are we? And 
not only is that concept of independent churches an oxymoron, but there's a slogan I hear all the time in this new phenomenon of multi-site campus churches, right? Churches that have lots of expressions. If you look on their websites, it'll say one church in two locations. Or it'll say one church in three locations, one church in four locations, whatever. But that's not right, is it? That must be way off. We're actually one church in hundreds of thousands of locations, aren't we? We are one church around the world who, who meets individually in local communities for fellowship and for worship. In order to fulfill God's purpose for the church around the world, we need to fully embrace this idea of the church, both local and Catholic as well. Ephesians 4 says that we all have one Lord, one faith, one baptism that you were baptized into. So let me just say, if you have a hard time with this concept of the church universal, the church around the world, I bet you who doesn't is Marcus Voller. If, if you know Christians in other countries, Jan Bennett, who lived in Venezuela as a missionary, Bobby and Dewey Dunn, who have traveled to hundreds of, of different mission trips and who are praying constantly for believers around the world, they probably get this concept of the universal church a lot better than people who aren't as well-traveled like myself. But I have been to Australia uh, a number of times, four different times, and had Australian friends come visit me on three occasions. I've been to Spain for seven uh, 10-day stretches, and I have Christian brothers and sisters in both of those locations who I pray for constantly and who are praying for me constantly and who I long to do ministry with and to see uh, again because they are part of my church family around the world. And I'm constantly thinking about them as furthering the kingdom alongside of us. I'm eternally grateful for them. Let's remember that this creed was in place too long before there was any such thing as the Roman Catholic Church, right? We know that this creed, as we have it today, was codified and in use at least by the 300s and probably before then in some form or other. There was only one global church literally at this point, and that unity really continued pretty much until the great schism of 1054 when the East and the West kind of went their separate Ways And even then, there were two churches basically until 500 years ago, 501 years ago last week, when the Protestant Reformation began. You know, we celebrated an important holiday last week. I'm not talking about Halloween. I'm talking about Reformation Day. Church history tells us that on All Hallows' Eve, October 31st, 1517, a young Augustinian monk named Martin Luther went trick-or-treating at the door of the cathedral in Wittenberg and put the 95 theses up there. The Protestant Reformation brought about a much-needed change. There were heresies that were being embraced by the Roman Catholic Church, and Luther said, no, this is not scriptural. We're going we're gonna to change this. He never sought to split from the Catholic Church. He just wanted to reform it, and I pray that God continues to reform the church universal because we need it today as much as they did then, don't we? But the, the point of the Reformation was a really good thing, right? I'm thankful for it. We are children of the Reformation here at Woodmont, aren't we? The teaching of the Reformation in a nutshell is this. We are saved by grace alone, 
through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, as taught by Scripture alone. That's awesome, right? That's 100% Baptistic and scriptural and, and true to our ideals here. But we lost something in the Reformation, didn't we? We lost a unity that was there. The, the church fractured and splintered into thousands of different pieces. And then those splinters fought wars over which splinter was right. And people died over that. The church was anything but unified. But what about today? It doesn't seem much better now among Christians, does it? We may not be fighting wars against each other, but, you know, when I was a kid growing up, my best friend who lived a few doors down from me, Ballard Boyd, he, he went to Franklin First United Methodist Church. And he might as well have been Buddhist to me, you know, like Hindu or something, because it was so foreign because he wasn't a good Baptist like I was. And we didn't really talk about church. And when I finally went to VBS with him, like in third or fourth grade or something, I was like, oh, they're teaching the same stories from the same Bible that we read at my church. That's fascinating. I remember thinking, this is blowing my mind right now. I thought they were completely some other alien religion to us, but they weren't. Sometimes it's hard to remember that we are Christians first and then our denomination must always take a back seat to that fact, right? We need to remember that truth. That is hard sometimes in our culture to remember. This is where the creed is so helpful though, right? I told you guys before that I went to an interdenominational evangelical seminary, Beeson Divinity School at Samford, not Stanford, Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. And we had all kinds of evangelical Christians there. We had Presbyterians, we had Methodists, we had something I didn't know existed, African Methodist Episcopal. We had a, a lot of them, both professors and students as well from all these different faith backgrounds. But the one thing that we all had in common is we affirmed the Apostles' Creed as being the core concepts of Christianity, the central, essential doctrines of our faith that we all robustly affirmed. Every week in chapels, we stood and recited that creed. It was affirmation of the essentials of our faith. We may have had our differences on certain liturgical practices within worship or maybe second-tier doctrines, but the creed gave us the binding essentials of the top-tier doctrines, the necessary things to believe. Derek Vreeland wrote a book on the Apostles' Creed called Primal Credo, and he says, if we allow non-essential doctrines to become paramount, we erect barriers to others in the body of Christ. But if we cling tightly to the creed, it has the power to form us into one church through the Holy Spirit without sacrificing our diversity. Diversity in unity, that's the picture of the church. So I know we haven't even gotten to our text yet, so let me just say a word real quick about what it means that this Catholic church is holy and about the communion of saints. Jesus died to make the church holy, to consecrate us to the Lord, to set us apart. The Greek word for church is ekklesia, and it literally means the called out ones, those who are in the world but not of the world. Look at how Paul addresses the church in his letter 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. 
Paul says, to the church, to the ecclesia, that's the word that's used there, of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, to those made holy in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, holy ones, literally the word there means holy ones, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, one Lord, one church. That common holiness, the, the sanctification that we share in the same spirit leads to a communion that transcends ethnic boundaries, that transcends socioeconomic boundaries, that transcends even space and time boundaries. This communion of saints connects horizontally among other Christians who are here on Church Row and around Nashville and also around the world and other countries, but it also connects us vertically to those saints who have gone on before us and are now alive with Christ in heaven. On All Saints Day, last Thursday, November 1st, I hope you were able to thank God for the saints who've gone before us, lighting the way that we walk today. You know, at Beeson, at my divinity school, again, we had this reminder uh, constantly of the cloud of witnesses that watches over us from heaven and that cheers us on, those saints who've gone before us. We had this big dome, right, when you walked into our chapel, and, and it had the, there it is, you can, it's a beautiful building. If you're ever in Birmingham, it's worth your time to go uh, see it. And, and in that dome, you can see underneath, there's 16 different figures from church history that were all around the, the inside of that dome that are kind of heroes of the Christian church. And, and they go all the way from Perpetua and Felicitas to Lottie Moon and William Seymour. Notice that was three women already right there that are featured in this. And then there's the smiling face of Christ. Go back to that last picture. You see the face of Christ in the middle of this great glowing cloud. You can't really tell, but those are faces in that cloud cheering us on, saying, you got this, this matters, keep going, reminding us of our connection to them even now. And that connection is a supernatural one forged by the Holy Spirit, communion, community, deeply felt brotherly affection are now possible among even those who were once enemies. I'm having lunch this week with the new pastor at 15th Avenue Baptist Church who has a long history with this church. I can't wait to see how the Lord's going to use our two congregations again to further racial healing in this community that we desperately need. Okay, so what, right? So what? J.I. Packer says the acid test of the church's state is what happens in the local congregation. Each congregation is a visible outcrop of the one church universal, called to serve God and people in humility and perhaps humiliation while living in the prospect of glory. And here's the question, he says, how is your congregation getting on? That's where these statements of Jesus help us. As much as I love the universal church, I love, I get fired up about the church around the world, the body of Christ united through space and time. There's one local expression of that church that I think about and pray for and eat, sleep, and breathe every day. And that's Woodmont Baptist Church. If Woodmont is going to help move the universal church forward, then we must understand what a church is supposed to do and then evaluate how are we getting on as Packer invites us to ask. 
What are the things that we're supposed to be doing? Well, what does Jesus say here? What would Jesus have the church to do locally and universally? In the Bible, we see that Jesus actually told us what our purpose is. He gave us the mission of the church in just these two very brief and succinct passages. First, he was asked by a Jewish scribe, a theological scholar, a really good question. He said, teacher, which one of these 613 Old Testament commandments, which one of them is the most important? And Jesus answers immediately, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Of course, this was a familiar passage to this scribe. To love the Lord your God with all your being was a commandment known as the Shema. In Hebrew, it's Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your being. Orthodox Jews to this very day recite the Shema first thing when they wake up and last thing before they go to bed. It's a good reminder. Maybe we should do that. And then Jesus gives the scribe a bonus commandment. He gives the second one for free. In verse 31, he says, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. The two great commandments. These are the most important prescriptions for godly living in a church. These are the guidelines for the church to follow always. It's how we are to be But then he gives us a great commission. These are the things that we are to do. At the end of Matthew, after Jesus' resurrection, he appears to his disciples and says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So what are we to do as a church? Well, the... The first commandment here says, love the Lord your God, right? The first commandment, the great commandment, with all that you are. That's the church's primary purpose. What do we call that? What does that look like? To love God completely, to put him first in our lives always. What is that? It's worship. It's worship. It's what our lives are to be about constantly. We're commanded to put the triune God of the universe in the first place of our lives each and every day at work, at home, at play. Then look at the next commandment, to love our neighbors. You know, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus defines our neighbor how? It's anyone that we may encounter who is in need, anyone that we may come across who has a need that we may be able to meet. What do we call that? Meeting needs. That's ministry, serving one another, loving those around us in tangible ways that bring hope and healing physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Okay, loving God, loving people, worship and ministry are our guidelines, keeping us on the right track to do what? Well, the Great Commission tells us to make disciples, to bring others off the shore and into the whitewater rapids that we're in of God's gospel purposes for the world, to bring others in on the journey that we're on as well. What do we call that? Evangelism, right? Jesus calls us to be fishers of men and women and children, seeking those who are lost and searching in order to bring them the light and life of the world. So then what do we do? Well, the Great Commission says we are to 
baptize them. We just said that in the church, do we have these purposes, Andy? In the church, the body of Christ, we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Baptism is an entryway into the fellowship of the church. It's how we, we come into the church, the communion of saints that we share. Baptism is a powerful outward symbol of the inward reality that we have gone from death and our sins to new life in Christ. And finally, the commission tells us that we are to teach people to obey all that God has commanded us. What do we call that? Discipleship. It's a journey of growing in grace, becoming more and more like Jesus and becoming less and less like Adam and Eve, our fallen ancestors. Through obedience, we become conformed to the image of Christ. That's that journey. Did you think I'd forgotten about the triangles? I hadn't. Worship, evangelism, discipleship, fellowship, and ministry. So how are we doing with these? I think Woodmont is an exceptional family of faith. I think that we are a warm fellowship that loves well and actively meets the needs of our community. We have a long way to go, but I think we're doing really well in those areas. We love to gather here in what Dr. Sherman called the church house to worship our Savior and our God. But I want to challenge us all to prayerfully consider how we can stir up one another to evangelism and to discipleship. I admit, I, I have struggled personally in these areas, and I'm recommitting myself right now to these two purposes. Will you join me? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you did not leave us without instructions, but that you told us, your church, what we are to be about. May worship be the center of all that we do here at Woodmont Baptist Church. May it be the fuel that ignites us and sends us out into the world to minister, to evangelize, to disciple, and to bring others into our fellowship. God, I pray that you would give us a heart for the lost and searching. We know that more than 30,000 cars drive by our church every day. I wonder how many of them are in a saving faith relationship with you, God, and how many are, are broken, how many are lost, how many are searching for some form of truth or another, and they've looked in every other possible place except your word, your truth. God, help us to make disciples. Help us to have a passion for seeing people become more and more conformed <clears throat> to your image and less conformed to this world around us. May we live radical lives as consecrated, holy people who are pietistic, not for our own sakes, but so that we can make a difference in the world. God, I pray that you would use these five purposes to further your church, not only here at Woodmont, but around the world. We thank you for our brothers and sisters for the young pastor that Bert Dyson baptized as a teenager in the 60s, who Marcus brought a letter back from Sierra Leone for Dr. Dyson, who's now a pastor, who's changing the lives through the Holy Spirit in Sierra Leone. God, we thank you for that legacy of the universal church at work around the world and how Woodmont has had a hand in it. We thank you for the coordinating work in the island nation of Dominica, that Steve Newton and Rob Caldwell are coordinating, God. We've seen your hand at work there in so many ways, and we just pray you would continue to use us 
in your church around the world, in the little village of La Plaine and beyond. God, give us a heart for the world. May we be people who are functioning as a healthy church in order to see your kingdom advance, all by your grace and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you're here today and you find yourself in that lost and searching boat and you say, I'm ready to receive the free gift of salvation that comes by grace through faith in Jesus. I would love to come talk with you about that right now as we have a time of invitation. We're going to sing about the church's one foundation on Christ, the solid rock. If you want to join Woodmont and want to talk to me about what being a member looks like here at Woodmont, I'd love to talk with you about that as well. Maybe you just want to come pray at the altar. I'm going to ask Jan Bennett. I'm going to ask Trey if you'll come up here and, and Brad if you'll come up here. If, if you want to pray for healing or pray for a, a, a relative who's lost and searching and you want to pray with one of these prayer warriors, I invite you to do that. Or if you just want to come kneel here at the altar, you want to pray for our children. God's really doing something in our children's ministry, our youth, whatever it is you want to pray for. I invite you to come now as we sing on Christ the solid rock. Let's stand. <laughs>